welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin. I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you, living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. But what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. Last week, I took a week off of the podcast to accomplish some tasks around the house and for some medical appointments and other priorities. In an effort to up my self-care and follow through on some aspects I'd been struggling with, including those I mentioned in the previous episode on sleep, and I'm happy to report that slowing down a bit and simplifying my schedule for the week really helped me better focus on self-care. It was so effective that I definitely plan to do it again, sometime soon, maybe eventually even once a month, to try to bring my life into better balance and accomplish all that I'm working towards. I encourage you as well, listeners, to think about all the things you fill your time with, chosen and unchosen. Are there things you want to do, week after week, that you just can't find time for? Consider adjusting your schedule like I did for just one week to finally create space for whatever it is you are missing. Trust me, you won't regret it. And just like those plants in my garden we talked about recently who survived just fine these past few months in extreme temperatures with no help from me, those in your garden will likely be just fine too. This week, we are going to spend some time talking about how to best support those of us living with MS from the perspective of folks living with MS. I've been thinking about this topic for a long time, and seeing the uprise in numbers of diagnoses this calendar year on a variety of social network sites, as well as seeing many posts where people have shared just how hard it is to help people understand our journey and get the kind of support we need from friends and family, has communicated to me that now is the proper timing for this episode. I have two intentions for this episode. One, that if we are personally struggling in getting the support we are craving, we will not feel so alone in this struggle. And two, that this episode can be a resource that we, the MS community, can share with our loved ones, since hearing a message from someone other than ourselves is often heard more easily. My gratitude for this episode is for my parents, and specifically for how they made efforts early on in my diagnosis to better understand the journey I was facing and to learn how they could better support me in the way I needed support. One way we accomplished this was by reading the book 29 Gifts together. It's a great book by Cami Walker about her MS diagnosis and subsequent journey. 
It's an easy read and depicts MS accurately, highlighting the many challenges that we might all face one day as people living with the incurable disease that is MS. After we read the book, we went out to breakfast together, pre-COVID times, and had a long book club style discussion. Being able to talk about Cammie's MS instead of my own felt much less personal and therefore less emotional for me, and my folks could voice their concerns about Cammie's symptoms more easily than talking about mine. This book also really helped me better communicate with my family the challenges I was already facing with my diagnosis and that I may face in the years to come. Somehow, I think it's easier for others to understand when the message comes from somewhere or someone else, and I was frankly still too new on my journey to even know what I truly needed support-wise, and even if I had, how to best articulate that. All of us had a very positive experience reading and discussing the book, and to me, it felt like it brought us closer together as a family. So today, thank you both for taking the time to read and discuss this book with me years ago now. And thank you, too, for continuing to listen to me as I learn more about what my dedication to living well with MS demands of me and us. I'm forever grateful and appreciate your ongoing support. Before we move along, it's important for me to also share as well that some of their early actions and the actions of some of my close friends didn't feel terribly supportive of me at the time. While I'm very transparent about most aspects of my life and quite comfortable with that, learning to live with an MS diagnosis was a little different for me. And having my diagnosis shared widely by others was a struggle for me, especially when shared with distant relatives or former colleagues I don't see much, if ever, who frankly just like to gossip. So I'll say this, disclosing personal health information is a very personal decision, and I ask that listeners take that to heart today. There is a reason HIPAA exists. Formerly known as the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, it was signed into legislation back in the 90s. These regulations were enacted to improve the health insurance system and to ensure the confidentiality and privacy of protected health information. Coming to grips with a diagnosis like this takes time to process, so holding off on sharing someone else's news until they are ready is much appreciated. Most of us experience a period of shock and extreme uncertainty when we receive our MS diagnosis. As we, and you, learn more about MS and we learn that our body is essentially attacking itself, it's a very complicated concept to process. And looking back now years later, I finally see with clarity how that self-betrayal of my own body attacking itself made it really easy to feel like I was being attacked by others too, even those with the best of intentions. Providing gentle support along with a ton of patience while we regain our bearings and allowing us to share our diagnosis when we are ready in a way we are comfortable with is one of the most compassionate and supportive things you can do when your loved one is diagnosed with MS. The very first thing I believe is critical to say about how to best support someone with MS is to acknowledge that MS impacts each of us uniquely. This is one of the hardest things about this disease. Let's think about that for a moment. 
With most major diagnoses, there is a clear path forward for treatment and stages of progression. So we can find out through medical testing where our entry point is on the continuum and have some faith that our caregivers can somewhat anticipate what lies ahead for us. Sure, there might be some choices as far as treatments, but for most major illnesses, there is a clearly established protocol for what the patient can expect moving forward. With MS, there is no such clear path. There are some reliable signposts along the way. For example, we know that most people are diagnosed with relapsing-remitting MS, and then at some point may progress to a more progressive form of MS. But again, that's not always the case. We do know that MS is progressive, meaning that it will, slowly over time, at a rate unique to each of us, become more of a barrier. And why MS is defined as a quality of life illness rather than a life-threatening illness. This high level of uncertainty, however, feels like a rug pulled out from under you. It seems like everything has changed overnight. The fear and uncertainty is palpable. It's important also to remind everyone that an MS diagnosis is often not arrived upon easily. It takes an average of three to five years for an MS diagnosis because there still is no definitive test for MS. MRIs are great tools, as are lumbar punctures, also called spinal taps. But neither is definitive, so neurologists have to rule out many other possibilities prior to landing on an MS diagnosis. It's important to mention this because it's often a very long haul, and we may feel a tremendous sense of relief once we finally receive our diagnosis, because at least now we finally know what's wrong with us. And then we come to realize the path forward is just as elusive. In choosing a disease-modifying therapy, if we choose that route, there are now so many to choose from that it can be quite daunting. None come without risk or side effects, and the higher efficacy treatments that come in tandem with more serious side effects are often also extremely expensive and frequently not honored by insurance until other lower-level treatments fail. At this time, some neurologists are starting to study best ways to determine which DMT might be the best fit for each of us, so there's a higher probability that the first medication we try works for us. But currently, we have to try the scientific method and experiment on ourselves. Or as my good buddy James says, go with a swag, scientific wild-ass guess, about which one we think will work best. This is really tough when we think about what a treatment failure can mean for us as we go through trial and error to find the right treatment for us. For me, a treatment failure while on Copaxone meant a severe case of optic neuritis that eventually resulted in my disability retirement in my 40s when I had hoped to continue my treasured livelihood of training and coaching teachers for at least another 20 years. It's easy to wonder how my life would be different if I had found the right-for-me treatment first and been able to prevent optic neuritis. I do want to add here that the decision to take a disease-modifying therapy should be left up to the person with MS. There is more and more evidence each year that DMTs can help us tremendously over time by slowing down our disease progression. But they also do potentially come at a heavy price both with side effects and quite literally the cost. 
Just as each of our MS journeys is unique, so too must be our chosen path forward. It's important we learn to listen to our internal voice for guidance and honor what we believe is right for us. It's our life, our body, our choice in how we decide to live with MS. So, of utmost importance, understand that your loved one is going through a huge upheaval in their life with no clear, obvious path forward. It's a time where most of us feel very alone. This is especially challenging if we have personalities where we typically defer to our doctors to tell us what to do next. Because with MS, there is not one clear path. It varies dramatically by neurologist. And many neurologists have their preferred treatments that might not represent the full gamut of options. In most cases, we are given a short list to research and choose from. And honestly, if you look at the treatments, there is no easy winner. They all come with a hefty dose of side effects and risks. What's most important is that your loved one chooses something that they are most comfortable with. Learning to be a better advocate for ourselves, however, can take time and patience, especially if we typically, like I previously mentioned, defer to doctors as medical experts to help us choose that path forward. This is also a time where your loved one might benefit from obtaining a second opinion. I did that and it was tremendously helpful since each neurologist suggested a different DMT and choosing one of their recommendations over the other felt like I was honoring one doctor over another, which didn't feel right as I highly respect them both and their divergent perspectives and approaches to MS treatment. I eventually asked them to hop on the phone and come to consensus with their recommendation, which they did. I felt really good about that decision and have been on that therapy over four years now with no new progression per my MRI last week. Let's take a few moments now to talk about empathy in the context of MS. First of all, empathy is defined as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. I haven't met anyone with MS yet who would wish this disease on a loved one, even if it meant that they could then better understand our challenges. This is one reason why I believe it's so important to connect with others living with MS. That's the only way to find others who truly understand. For those who don't have MS, finding ways to empathize with someone newly diagnosed with or living with MS is important. Empathy is what connects us. Making efforts to empathize, even if you can't truly understand, will go a long way in helping your loved one feel supported. Showing empathy doesn't mean we personally have walked in someone else's shoes, but it does show that we can imagine being in their shoes and understand how they might feel. So statements like, I can understand why you might be upset about this, or I can see this information is making you uncomfortable or a hug, reassuring touch, can be helpful displays of empathy. Empathy is different than sympathy, and this is an important distinction. While empathy allows us to vicariously experience and identify with another person's feelings, sympathy is often a feeling of pity or sorrow for the feelings of others. With empathy, we feel with someone else. With sympathy, we feel for someone else. The last thing someone needs when facing a life-changing struggle like an MS diagnosis is an outpouring of sympathy. And in fact, that was one of the hardest parts of the process for me. 
To have people that I didn't even know knew about my diagnosis bombard me out of left field with no warning, with stifling bear hugs and uncontrollable sobs like I had already died or my life was no longer worth living was extremely upsetting, especially when this happened in a public place, like church when I was about to sing in front of hundreds of people. This again goes back to honoring your loved one's wishes and the importance of them deciding what is shared when and with whom. Empathy is a learned practice that begins ideally in childhood. Biologically speaking, females tend to naturally be more empathetic than males because they inherently are attuned to be more aware and more keenly observe other people's feelings and the subtle cues that others give off. Those who have experienced the widest range of emotions and those who are most in touch with their feelings are also more able to empathize with what others feel. There's more to talk about empathy, though, because it's a very misunderstood concept. Often, we think empathizing is synonymous with consoling someone, or we think that helping them fix the problem or giving helpful advice is empathy. We might also think empathizing is wondering how we'd feel or react if we were in the same situation. And that's closer, but in thinking about empathy in this way, we are actually still focusing on how we would react. And in doing so, we don't learn anything about the person we're trying to support. And we might make incorrect assumptions about how they are feeling or what solutions they are considering. True empathy is something a little different. And I want to touch on that today so that we all understand with clarity how to best support someone in any hardship through extending empathy. In a nutshell, true empathy is being in the present moment with another human being. It's not figuring out the right words to say or even trying to ease pain or offer strategies. Many people struggle with empathizing, according to experts, because we don't truly know how to empathize with ourselves, which is a vital awareness in the ability to be a strong empathizer to others. It does make sense. How can we sit with someone else's pain if we can't sit with our own? It's important that we learn to understand and connect with our own personal range of emotions, as it's quite typical to learn over the years to ignore, avoid, or discount our feelings. So step one in becoming a strong empathizer is to reflect deeply on our own feelings and fears. Once we have a clear idea of our own thoughts and emotions, we can better differentiate our own feelings and thoughts from those of others. Which is important because without it, we may just project our own feelings and needs upon others. And even if we have the best intentions in helping someone, trust me, that is not the likely impact our actions will have. Separating observations from judgments helps us learn to practice stronger self-empathy. Focusing on what we see or witness rather than how we feel or intuit from a situation helps us focus on the facts. When trying to listen to someone empathetically, Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change, wrote, the essence of empathetic listening is not that you agree with someone. It's that you fully, deeply understand that person emotionally as well as intellectually. And what that means is that we go into conversations with the sole goal of understanding the person. This means we aren't focused on what we're going to say back to them or how we connect with them. We rather are present with the person, paying attention to their words, reactions, and gestures. 
We, in essence, reflect their empathy back to them by validating that we hear what they are saying and we care. However they feel, whatever they need, that is their truth. By listening and respecting their truth without judgment, without trying to eliminate it, solve it, or change it. It's not easy, but it's a powerful thing to truly empathize, to create space to allow someone to be exactly how they are and who they are in that moment. That is what makes someone feel truly heard and understood. And this is precisely why practicing true empathy is such an important tool for someone living without MS to support someone who is living with MS. We don't need advice. We'll get that from others who are further along the road of living with MS when we are ready to seek that information. Rather, what we do need from those whom we love is a kind, patient, listening ear, a shoulder, a gentle hug, someone who can just sit with us, listen, and be. Reflect back to us that you hear what we're saying about how we feel. We don't expect nor want you to understand. We just need to be held, figuratively and sometimes quite literally. A lot has changed for us, and that's a huge mental load to carry and sort through to make sense of. But we'll get there, and much faster with strong, empathetic support. I also want to mention here that for myself, as a highly empathetic and emotional person who has studied these frameworks and techniques for decades in my coaching practice, I still struggle with focusing solely on empathy when supporting someone. I'm hardwired to be solutions-oriented and often actually, in a way, feel the pain of others, so I want badly to help. This means I have to work really hard to save my suggestions for when they are asked for. Luckily, MS is an incredible teacher. Slowly, I'm learning that the most effective way I can share strategies and suggestions is through this podcast and by sharing my own story and research. It's here as an offering. What others choose to do with the information is their own, and that's exactly the way it should be. All this to say, learning to be solely empathetic is not easy, and it's a journey. What matters most is that we try. So, beyond being truly empathetic, what else can we do to show our support? The one and only answer is to support your loved one with MS in the way they want to be supported. How on earth do we know what that is? We have a conversation and we listen. We ask. We say, I care about you and want to be supportive of you and what you are going through in the way that will help you most. How would you like to be supported? As we progress with MS, more and more may become difficult for us. We'll have to learn how to ask for help, which is difficult in that many of us are quite stubborn, self-sufficient people who typically focus on caring for others more than ourselves. And this necessitates quite a significant shift in our personality and vulnerability and humility and accepting that we might not be able to be as independent as we were previously. And we're going to have to step up our self-care game, which feels awkwardly selfish to many of us in the beginning and takes some time to figure out. So, the best advice is to refrain from assumptions. Ask, what do you need? What do you not need? What is helpful? What is not helpful? 
Having this open conversation and truly listening and empathizing will help you know how best to support your loved one and help them live well with MS. Sometimes caregivers' attempts at support are seen as overprotective or intrusive. This can cause people with MS to feel minimized or overlooked. It can also cause a strain in relationships, so it's important to avoid helping with tasks too quickly. Taking over for us can undo the sense of accomplishment of completing something on our own, even if it takes longer. Maybe it's helpful to think of it this way like I do. I still can typically achieve what I need to achieve or get to most destinations. But nowadays, I often take the winding country road rather than the direct highway. Maybe it takes longer, but honestly, sometimes the view and overall experience can actually be a lot more enjoyable. There's less noise, less traffic, if you will, and I still get to my destination. Caregiving studies indicate that when caregivers provide help in ways that promote self-worth and preserve independence, relationships improve. The study also suggested that open communication and caregivers stepping back could help minimize negative outcomes. Sometimes the best way to offer support is by simply giving a person some space. If we ask for time on our own, please respect and follow that request. There are many lists on the good old interwebs about how to best support someone living with MS, and I want to share some of those here as well. Although I will reiterate that talking with your loved one, listening and empathizing, and respecting their wishes is the most effective approach that will be tremendously appreciated. We'll look at these strategies from both the caregiver or loved one perspective and from the perspective of someone living with MS so we can truly understand what it's like on both sides of the fence and to give you some ideas about what to talk with your loved one about. I'll also share some personal examples. As a former educator in an area where we had lots of students with unique needs and IEPs, which are Individualized Educational Plans or 504 Plans, it was my job to remove educational barriers and find new ways to teach difficult concepts to make sure all educational standards could be mastered by all students, and so all students could be successful in a classroom setting. I'm so grateful for this skill set as it's taught me to be creative and perseverant in the face of challenge. I have no doubt this skill has helped me tremendously in the challenge of learning to live well with MS. Okay, so let's look at some ways we can work together to make living with MS much easier and enjoyable. The first is maintaining social ties, and helping to ensure your loved one has others living with MS to talk to is very important. The quality of life of someone living with MS is driven in large part by social support. And in fact, research published in the European Journal of Neurology found that social support was so important to patients with MS that the researchers recommended that patients be asked about their level of support, among other factors, every time they visit their doctor. As we mentioned before, it should be up to the person with MS to determine if and when they tell others about their diagnosis. Everyone may react differently to the news, so it's important to take time to strategize about how to approach family members, friends, children, and co-workers. 
When we do decide it's time to share our news, we should prepare for a wide range of reactions and ensure we plan enough time to answer questions and talk about anything else that comes up. If you are someone living with MS that is on the fence about sharing your diagnosis, some benefits to ponder are that once we share about our diagnosis, we may feel like a huge weight has been lifted and will likely feel more in control of our life and path forward. We can ask our friends and our family and colleagues for help now that they know what's going on. We'll have the opportunity to educate people about MS, which will help them be able to help us even more and maybe even strengthen our relationship. Telling colleagues will help them to better understand why we may be tired or unable to perform some of our typical duties at work the same way we've done in the past. People who may have an idea that something is wrong won't have to guess. Telling them avoids having them make incorrect assumptions and harmful gossiping. There are also some potential downfalls of sharing our diagnosis with others that are worth thinking about. Some people may not believe us or think we're seeking attention, especially if some or all of our symptoms are not easily visible, which is quite common with MS, especially at the beginning of our journey. Some people may avoid us because they don't know what to say. Some people will take it as an opportunity to provide unsolicited advice or to push unapproved or alternative therapies upon us and try everything in an attempt to fix us. People may now see us as fragile or weak and stop inviting us to events. It might be especially difficult to tell our children. Some people prefer to wait until a child is older. If we let data dictate a recommended timeline, research does show that children who have little or no information about their parents' MS diagnosis have lower emotional well-being than those who are well-informed. And in fact, a recent study concluded that having doctors discuss MS directly with a patient's children helps to create a foundation for the entire family to better cope with the challenge. So considering bringing a child to a doctor appointment is something worth thinking about. When there is open dialogue, everyone feels more comfortable asking questions. Everyone understands modifications and accommodations that may need to be made to existing structures and systems or ways of operating around the home to ensure safety and well-being. There's even a kid-friendly MS magazine called Keep Smilin' from the MS Society that contains stories, interviews, interactive games, and activities related to MS. While we mentioned it a few moments ago, I want to share a little more about sharing a diagnosis with employers and colleagues, since this is a very personal decision worth marinating on for a while, so it's not a rash decision. The vast majority of people with MS continue working for quite some time after their diagnosis. But just like our MS is unique, this is a personal decision that will be slightly different for each of us. Sometimes disability retirement is our choice as far as timing goes, and sometimes the choice is made for us. There are a lot of factors like our age, occupation, job responsibilities, and how MS has impacted us thus far. Before sharing our diagnosis with our employers, it's smart to research our rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. There are legal employment protections in place to protect us from being let go of or discriminated against because of a disability. 
disclosing our medical information to our employer may be required in certain scenarios. For example, we need to let our employer know in order to take advantage of medical leave or accommodations under the Family and Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, and the provisions of the Americans with Disability Act, the ADA. We don't have to disclose our diagnosis of MS per se, but providing a doctor's note stating that we have a medical condition and how it might impact our work is important. We can also have our doctor suggest reasonable accommodations and modifications to our work to help keep us in the workforce as long as possible. I personally went the full disclosure route since that's pretty much how I typically live my life. There were some great things about that since many of my colleagues were extremely supportive, and yet it also resulted in my disability retirement sooner than I had hoped. The last part of disclosure I want to briefly touch on is if we are single or dating. When do we tell someone about our MS? This is a very personal decision, and there are as many opinions as there are people. Since keeping secrets doesn't help build and foster trust in a relationship, it's wise to say something before things get too serious, but it certainly doesn't need to be a first or even a second date topic. Many people worry that disclosing our MS diagnosis may make people turn away and run for the hills. But many of us, including myself, have found that it actually brought us closer together. I see it this way. Our MS actually illuminates true character and helps us to see how strong of a life partner someone may be. Do some relationships end because of MS? Sadly, yes. However, I strongly believe that says more about the person than the MS itself. Secondly, be flexible. I want to reiterate the extreme uncertainty we experience living with MS. This is especially difficult if we or our loved ones are planners or people with type A personalities. Because the disease can be so unpredictable, it's difficult to plan too far in advance. And for many of us, it's quite the adjustment to learn to live in the moment and have to back out of events last minute, which, newsflash, most of us really hate to do, but know it's unfortunately no longer a choice. Since MS symptoms run the gamut and can range from dizziness, imbalance, weakness, cognitive change to a variety of serious vision issues, it's important our loved ones are aware of the variability and unpredictable fluctuations that can occur with symptoms. So giving a gift of concert tickets for an outdoor show in the dead of summer, for example, might not be a wise thing to give to someone with MS, especially if they have heat-triggered symptoms. In my case, just as an example, I could be fine for part of the event, and then with prolonged exposure, lose my ability to see, preventing me from being able to get myself home safely. This, again, is why talking openly and asking questions can help our loved ones be more informed and plan accordingly to show their support. Being ultra-flexible, understanding, and patient is important. Sometimes we might experience debilitating fatigue or other symptoms without any warning. So if our loved ones can be okay if we have to cancel on them or change up our plans a bit, we thank you deeply for your understanding. We have good days and bad days, and unfortunately we sadly don't get to pick and choose when we experience each. Having a backup plan is a good idea, so if plans do need to change, it doesn't create more problems or feelings of shame, disappointment, or regret.
Another way to effectively support your loved one with MS is to try to treat them the same as you always have. Sure, you might help them more than you did in the past or in a different way, but be sure to also keep sharing your own struggles, since healthy relationships require mutual support. For example, a loved one might feel like they shouldn't ask for help from someone with MS out of fear of burdening them, but it's highly unlikely we'd feel like that. It's more important now than ever that we continue to feel helpful and useful to those around us that we love. Another good way to provide support is to research to learn as much as you can about MS. There are a ton of online resources just to Google search away. There are even educational programs like webinars, YouTube instructional videos, and support group caregiver meetings and other events. There are books for families and for children to help them understand their loved one's MS. Most of these are free downloads. Becoming more familiar with MS can help you better understand what your loved one may be feeling, even if you can't see their symptoms, which is true with so many of our symptoms. As you research, you'll learn that MS is a chronic disease that affects the central nervous system. It can cause a wide range of symptoms, which vary greatly from person to person. Likewise, helping us stay up to date on new treatment options and clinical trials can be really helpful. There are several different types of MS, and each requires a different treatment plan. Many of our symptoms can be invisible, like weakness or tremors, but other symptoms will only be noticed by those of us living with MS. We might feel sudden intense sensory changes, like debilitating stabbing pain, numbness, tingling, dizziness, vision issues, emotional changes, or ultra-sensitivity to smells, lights, or heat. Here again is where being both knowledgeable about MS combined with talking openly and frequently with your loved one about their unique MS symptoms is a winning combination. You can also offer to help with the little stuff along with the big stuff. It's a tough transition to lose our abilities, even temporarily. We can struggle with ordinary things like walking, cooking, cleaning, using the restroom, or getting dressed. Often these routine daily routines that most of us take for granted and do without thinking about it become our biggest challenges. When I first had transverse myelitis, for example, I couldn't use my hands. I lost all fine and most gross motor abilities. I couldn't wash my hair easily and blow drying my hair was a nightmare. Cleaning, especially anything requiring scrubbing or heat like laundry, became very difficult. I had to write using voice-to-text technology. That first Christmas, Eric had to cut my food into bite-sized pieces for me, which he did so kindly, I never felt bad about it. I somehow found a way to, albeit not gracefully, hold my own fork and could gratefully lift a light, partially filled drinking glass in both hands on my own. So, dividing and conquering household tasks breaking them into smaller chunks by doing a little bit each day over the course of a few days, and offering to help out with things like folding laundry, vacuuming, washing dishes, and so on, can be very much appreciated. And in fact, this is precisely why I now have a preferred love language of acts of service. I had always been fiercely independent, but suddenly needed help with very basic personal things. Luckily, with relapsing remitting MS, which is the type of MS I currently have, 
I did recover most functionality over time. So again here, it's critical to have open channels of communication so everyone knows when we might need assistance and when we'd prefer to be more independent. Oh, and if we say we've got it, let us do it independently, please. We've lost so much. If we can, we often want to. Another way to support a loved one with MS is to financially support MS charities like the MSAA or the MS Society, amongst others. Research is important since there is currently no cure for MS. We are fortunate to have many options for disease-modifying therapies that we might choose to use to slow our overall disease progression over time, and yet all of this takes money. If you do like to donate to good causes, I've been especially impressed with the MSAA, MS Association of America, in that they put their dollars directly into helping people living with MS who are struggling. I personally know people who have received funding for electric wheelchair batteries, home access ramps, accessibility remodels of bathrooms, etc. When Eric casually mentioned years ago that he had been donating to MS charities for some time, it meant the world to me. It showed me he cared about me and our future together. Another way to assist us in living well with MS is to help us stay physically and mentally active. Daily exercise is important for many reasons, including mood and fatigue management, but it might need to look different than what exercise used to look like for us. Even stretching is movement, so it's possible we may need to adjust our definitions of exercise, and you might too. Starting off with low-impact exercises like walking, water aerobics, biking, or yoga are good choices. There's even great chair yoga workouts on YouTube that you can enjoy together for free from the comfort of your home. Talk with us about exercise and we can find fun things we'll be able to do together to maintain an active lifestyle. Mental activity is important as well. Eric and I love to play board games together, and he has done an incredible job making sure we always have an assortment of games that we can play, regardless of my current physical or mental status. When I lost fine motor use and vision in my right eye, he got us a game called Quirkle, which had large pieces with bright colors I could accurately detect with my good eye. When I experience cognitive decline or debilitating fatigue, we choose easy games we're familiar with and save the more complicated or new games for when I'm feeling sharp and energetic. If you live with your loved one with MS, you can also help us practice good sleep hygiene. Getting enough restorative sleep helps us better manage MS fatigue and heal while we sleep. Having a shared bedtime and other household routines that we do together will help us keep on a schedule that supports our shared health. Help us on our search for great doctors and with helping us with insurance prescriptions and filling out paperwork. These are all incredibly difficult tasks for many of us, and yet they are all such an important part of our care. Since MS is a lifelong disease, it's important to find a care team that is a good match for us, and this can take time and effort. It took me five years to land on a team I love, and I'm actually still searching for a new primary care physician. For treating our MS, we'll often need a neurologist that specializes in MS, 
a physical therapist to help us with physical needs as they change over time, to work on things like strength, range of motion, coordination, and balance. A psychologist or therapist to help manage our emotions. A neuropsychologist to help monitor our cognitive abilities over time, like memory, focus, executive function, problem solving, and processing of data. We may also benefit from an occupational therapist who can help us learn to perform daily tasks more efficiently and teach us helpful modifications to make things easier, or a social worker to assist us with community services and financial resources. Some of us may, in addition, have a nutritionist or dietitian to help us maintain a healthy diet, or even a speech-language pathologist if we struggle with speech, breathing, or swallowing. If your loved one desires, having you take an active role in their care team can be appreciated. Just remember to ask and don't assume what your role should be. Examples of actively engaging in your loved one's care may include going to appointments with them, asking healthcare professionals about anything you or your loved one don't understand, helping manage medications and other treatments, your role may change over time as MS progresses, so revisit conversations regularly about your participation and support to ensure you're aligned. Sometimes we might need more help, and other times we may want to be more independent. Another way you can really help us is by supporting us in an effort to eat well by eating well with us. Food is the best source of the nutrients we need to maximize our health. And research shows that folks with MS who maintain a healthy weight usually have much less disability progression and brain lesions over time. In recent years, there's now very compelling research linking the importance of digestive health to living well with MS. It's much easier to eat healthy when everyone in the home agrees to support one another in that endeavor. And cooking together has also become one of our greatest joys. Eric manages anything involving heat and sharp knives, and we do a lot of batch cooking together, so we have easy, healthy, go-to meals readily available for those days I'm not feeling well enough to cook. We've also invested in cooking tools to make cooking easier. For example, the air fryer Eric got me as a gift is great during the summer so we can avoid using the oven. It makes perfectly cooked veggies and our favorite spicy chicken meatballs in just minutes or the Instapot that helps us make delicious hearty stews in winter, even from frozen in a jiffy. When living with someone with MS, another way you can help us is to work with us to develop short and long-term plans for how to rework our home and work environments to make sure they work well now and in the future, whatever it may hold. For example, Eric and I moved almost three years ago so we could set ourselves up for long-term comfort. We moved to a significantly more affordable home, without steps or stairs, with wide hallways, air conditioning, a dishwasher, and other features that I never had before, but that will make my future living with MS much easier than anywhere we've lived previously. Having air conditioning, a dishwasher, a whole house water filter, an elevated washer and dryer, those tools help so much, even more than I anticipated. With MS, heat sensitivity is a big issue for most of us, so ensuring we have a safe, temperature-controlled environment is really important. 
Installing solar this year was an investment, but since installation, we've yet to have an electric bill, even in the crazy prolonged period of extensive heat this summer. At this rate, we'll pay off the solar in just a few years. Our wide hallways can accommodate a large industrial rolling laundry cart that I use now to make most laundry tasks possible and would work for a mobility aid if I should ever need it in the future. We also have tools like voice-activated multi-frequency smart lights that are much easier on my sensitive eyes. Maximizing the home environment also includes things like reorganizing so that commonly used items are easily accessible and labeling items in storage so it's easy to find things we need when we need them. For example, my bathroom cabinets now have lists on the inside of the door to indicate what's on each shelf so I can find what I need even when I can't remember where I put something. Gadgets, like a jar opener in the kitchen, can also make life much easier, and organizing plates in lower cabinets has helped a lot for emptying the dishwasher. And in my office, I now have an ergonomic desk chair, special low-frequency desk light, and special glasses to reduce glare and ease my sensitive eyes while using screens. All of these strategies and tools make my daily life easier now and also give me peace of mind for the future as my needs will likely change. Adaptations to the home may improve safety, accessibility, and independence and could include adding ramps, kitchen or bathroom renovations, or adding handholds or railings to name a few. Many small changes can be helpful without being expensive, and there are organizations like the MS Society and the MS Association of America that offer financial help for these types of modifications. I'll mention here, too, that not all difficulties are permanent, so I might struggle with something for a while and then be okay with doing something independently again. So again, it's important to keep the conversation going about what and how we prefer to be supported and where we'd like to maintain some independence. Helping us utilize technology is a great way to help us live well with MS. Setting reminders is a really helpful tool to remind us to take medication, remember important appointments, routines, or other tasks we might forget especially if our MS is impacting our ability to concentrate and remember. There are a ton of helpful phone apps that can help compensate for memory problems, as well as fun games that can help keep us all mentally sharp as we age, whether we have MS or not. We can also use technology to set up auto-refills for prescriptions or subscribe and save shopping tools for commonly used items. Helping us stay positive is another way to help us. It's rough to live with an incurable disease knowing it will be our companion for the rest of our lives. Help us hold on to hope and find new hobbies to replace those we can no longer do. Living with MS can be overwhelming, and it can feel like we no longer have any semblance of control in our lives. Some days we won't be able to do things we want to do, either because of a physical ailment, emotional reason, or an energy deficiency. Helping us through those hard days can help us weather the storm a little easier. This might mean that some things we previously enjoyed doing together we might not be able to continue doing together. But you can still do those things on your own or with other people, and we can discover new things for us to do together. 
There is a long list now of things I can no longer safely do, like windsurfing, backpacking, playing instruments, and sports like soccer and volleyball. I'm grateful I've been able to find alternatives that I enjoy, and I'm hoping that one day I can afford a travel vehicle with temperature control so I can get back out into nature safely, since currently tent camping without a safe temperature-controlled environment is no longer an option. Helping us stay positive might also mean finding new ways to practice gratitude and mindfulness together. Depression is a serious concern for about 80% of people living with MS. It's important to be aware of that and help support us with our mental health management. I'm going to touch on a few things now that most folks with MS strongly dislike, so as we all know to avoid them. Since it's impossible to truly understand what it's like to have MS unless you have it too, that means that sometimes people might inadvertently say something hurtful or inconsiderate without meaning to. So here's some of the most frequent, annoying, and hurtful things people with MS hear. You don't look sick to me. You look like you feel great. Many of our MS symptoms aren't easily visible. Saying so feels like our symptoms are devalued or not believed. And this is hard to hear when some of these invisible symptoms are so incredibly painful and debilitating. Instead, ask, how are you feeling? And listen with an open heart without judgment. Well, my friend with MS... As previously mentioned, MS impacts each of us uniquely, so even if you have wonderful advice that worked well for a friend, if unsolicited, it can come across as preachy and annoying. Instead, acknowledge the nuances of MS by saying, I know MS impacts everyone uniquely. How have you been doing? Have you tried XYZ? Insert a specific diet, medication, therapy strategy here. First of all, there is currently no cure for MS. That bee sting therapy? That mile-long list of expensive supplements I can't afford? To be honest, we love brainstorming solutions with other MS folks. People without MS? Not so much. So again, ask your loved one if it would be helpful to hear about other people's MS experiences. If they say yes, share away, yet be clear in sharing that this worked for your friend and acknowledge MS is different for everyone. Think of it as an offering rather than a suggestion. It's a slight distinction, but we'll appreciate it. I'm tired too. Fatigue. Many people with chronic illness in general, and especially people with MS, experience fatigue. In fact, fatigue is one of the most common symptoms of MS, impacting about 80% of us at some point. It significantly interferes with our ability to function, and fatigue is one of the primary causes of early disability retirement. MS fatigue, however, is different than the fatigue that people without MS experience. MS fatigue can occur on a daily basis. It tends to get worse as the day progresses, is exacerbated by heat, humidity, and stress, and can come on out of nowhere. Sometimes we get really tired of being tired. There are days when getting out of bed is challenging and times when we may literally have to force ourselves to do just about anything. Chronic fatigue like this can be very frustrating. 
Most people who have not experienced MS fatigue cannot comprehend how MS fatigue is totally different than just being incredibly tired. The best way I can describe MS fatigue, at least how I experience it, is that it's your worst hangover combined with your worst jet lag experience combined with your worst body achy flu all at once. When I have bad fatigue, even my skin and hair hurt. Statements that admittedly sound ridiculous, but are sadly quite representative of how I feel. When MS fatigue hits hard, it's not unusual for someone to lay down all day and still lack the energy to even lift their head, drink some water, or take off a layer of clothing. And no amount of sleep or rest helps. When we hear, I'm tired too, it inadvertently devalues how hard MS fatigue is for us. Don't get us wrong. We're actually really glad you don't understand. We don't want you to know what it's like. Yet please refrain from comparing tiredness or general fatigue to MS fatigue. MS fatigue is a bear. We are not lazy. And yes, people have said that to many of us too. While we don't want your sympathy, we also don't find insults or directives about what we should do or not do very helpful. I don't know anyone with MS who wants to do less. We all want to do more. By helping us in the ways we shared in this episode, you will be a true partner and have a tremendous positive impact on how well we are able to live with MS. Most of us also really don't appreciate being asked, why do you think you got MS? This is a heavy question. For many of us, the further along the journey we get, we do develop an understanding about some of the risks that might increase our chances of ending up with an autoimmune disease, including but not limited to MS. The true cause of MS is still unknown, and most risk factors, both genetic and environmental, are out of a person's control. There are some aspects of the disease that I discuss in other episodes that may shine a light on some behaviors, experiences, and mindsets that can impact our chances of ending up with MS. Diving deeply into those topics can be extremely enlightening and also pretty emotionally intense, so doing so with a skilled therapist is recommended as the past can inform the future. Once we're made aware of these barriers to better health, it's our choice to change them. But getting MS or having MS is not anyone's fault. I also want to acknowledge here today that caregiving is hard and can take a lot out of us. I have not cared for someone living with MS, but I did in-home care for my dear Grandma Lorraine, who was my bestie for years. So I know how taxing that can be. Part of being a good caregiver is having strong self-care to help maintain your own health and avoid burnout. And in fact, modeling this self-care for your loved one, or even better, embarking on that journey together, can be very powerful. Advice for caregivers is truly good advice for us all. Get enough sleep, exercise daily, even if it's just stretching, take time for hobbies, ask for help when you need it. Caregiver burnout is real. If you recognize any of the following, be sure to take time to get the support you need so you can continue to care for your loved one like emotional and physical exhaustion, becoming ill yourself, diminished interest in activities you typically enjoy, an increase in sadness, anger, or irritability, trouble sleeping, or feeling anxious. 
If you recognize any of these signs in your own behavior, call the National Multiple Cirrhosis Society at 800-344-4867 and ask to speak with one of their awesome navigators about your struggles. They are great supports for caregivers and for folks living with MS alike. There are also a few other resources for caregivers to help them lead more balanced lives and manage caregiving responsibilities in a healthy manner. The Caregiver Action Network hosts an online forum where you can connect with other caregivers. This is a good resource if you want to share advice or talk with others going through the same experience. There's also the Family Caregiver Alliance that provides state-by-state -state resources, services, and programs to help caregivers, and they also have a monthly caregiver newsletter. The National MS Society has the MS Navigators Program where professionals can help connect you to resources, emotional support service, and wellness strategies. I'd like to take a moment now to speak directly to our listeners who love or care for someone living with MS. First, I want to thank you for getting this far on the episode. It means a lot to me as someone living with MS that you are taking time out of your life to listen to ways you might be able to better support your loved one living with MS. That is a beautiful thing, and I am very grateful for your time and efforts. Second, I want to take this opportunity to invite you to listen to other episodes of Misunderstood to deepen your understanding about what it takes to live well with MS. While you can truly start anywhere, I want to take a moment to highlight some episodes you might find especially helpful. The introductory episode, episode zero, is all about finding people who truly understand and why I believe it's so important for people with MS to join hands and hearts with others as their primary MS support. This doesn't mean that you don't and won't continue to play a very important role in your loved one's life, but it does mean that there are other people out there who are better equipped to support your loved ones in certain ways that you can't. And dividing up the support is in no way, shape, or form saying you aren't doing enough. It's just a special kind of support that only someone else living with MS can provide. Begin to see that as a positive. And one way to do that is possibly by me sharing about how this choice impacted my relationship with my partner, Eric. Before I made the decision to create my own support spaces online to meet up with other folks with MS, I pretty much talked with him about everything MS. He tried his best to be understanding and empathetic, and he did pretty good. But as I shifted over to talking more about my MS with other people with MS, that allowed our conversations to be about other things, and it helped us both to keep MS in perspective. It is a part of me and a part of our relationship, but it is just that, a small part of who we are as a couple. So being a part of the MS flock helps nurture that part of me in the way I need to be nurtured and leaves my partner and I to focus on other, more enjoyable aspects of our life together. Episodes one and three are all about mindset and how important it is for us to stay mentally strong and positive. The episode also includes some effective strategies to help that you could participate in alongside your loved one, as they are widely applicable to a variety of typical life challenges. Episodes 2 and 16 feature Dr. Susan Peyrovi, my integrative medicine doctor who also has MS. 
In episode two, you'll get to hear a lot about her story and how she navigated her diagnosis and pivoted her career to help herself and others with MS. In episode 16, she revisits us to share her top tips for nutrition for MS, as well as ways to make cooking healthy easier. Episode 4 focuses on the power of gratitude and how it can be an effective healing agent in our lives. The research is overwhelming regarding the positive impacts practicing gratitude regularly can have on us all. Episode 5 focuses on self-care, which is something many of us living with MS struggle with since we often spend more of our energy caring for others rather than ourselves. With MS, we need to make our self-care priority, and this episode contains a lot of strategies for how to make that switch. This is another way you could work with your loved one to create new routines together to support self-care for you both. Episode 6 focuses on love languages. When someone goes through a massive life change, like an MS diagnosis, our priorities naturally change. Understanding what each of us values and how we prefer to give and receive love and affection will help us better navigate big life changes together and make sure we're truly listening and communicating in ways others can hear and understand. Eric and I reassess our preferred love languages together regularly. It helps us stay connected through the years as we both change as we age. Episodes 9 through 11 are all about boundaries, since many of us either currently or historically have struggled with imbalance in a relationship with someone very close to us. Many of us also experienced a lot of hardship at a young age, which is featured in episode 11. If your loved one is newly diagnosed, episode 12 is a great way to understand what they're going through and to help them feel not so alone during this scary and often unstable time. This episode also looks at the common misconceptions about MS and demystifies what the MS road ahead may look like for your loved one and for you. To better understand heat intolerance and other sensitivities that are hard to understand unless you've personally experienced them, check out episode 13. Heat intolerance changed my life significantly and limits when I can be outdoors or in non-temperature controlled environments. So having those close to me understand these limitations helps them be more sensitive to my needs when we make plans. In a similar way, in episode 14, we look at ways to more comfortably and confidently ride the chronic illness roller coaster and how we can better prepare for the ups and downs together to make the ride feel just a little less out of control. I add new episodes most weeks, so don't be shy. You're welcome to listen too. I love hearing that people are listening and finding the podcast helpful that don't even have MS. Currently, our flock meetings on Saturdays are limited to folks living with MS. But if you are a caregiver and interested in potentially co-hosting an additional meeting with others who are supporting people living with MS, please reach out. I'd love to chat with you to explore that option further. My hope is that after listening to this episode, we, one, all understand how uniquely MS manifests itself for each of us living with MS, so it's very important to remember our journey and our struggles and solutions will be our own. Two, because each of our own MS experiences are unique, it's critical that our loved ones ask how they can best support us rather than making assumptions with best intentions and understand that some aspects of support are best left to other folks living with MS. 
Three, that we have a deeper understanding of true empathy and how to hold space and listen to just be with someone in their time of need. Four, that we appreciate the stresses that come with being a caregiver for someone with MS and remember to employ effective self-care strategies and know when to ask for support. And finally, that we recognize that we are in this together, those of us living with MS and our caregivers and loved ones. If we can keep open channels of communication about how we are navigating this challenge together, our relationships will thrive. In this way, MS can actually bring us closer together over time and become a catalyst for closeness rather than a barrier that keeps us drifting further apart. Before we finish up today, I want to talk to you again briefly. Yeah, you, a listener who is living with MS. Most of this episode today was geared toward helping to communicate some important messages to people in our lives who care about us and might not yet understand how to best help support us in ways we appreciate. Yet there's a couple other really important messages that we need to hear too. It's important that we understand just how difficult it is to offer someone deep empathy when we have no personal experience to understand what they are going through. So first, let's be gentle with our loved ones. I don't know about you, but MS has changed me for sure. And I acknowledge that this may be hard for not only me, but the people in my life who care about me and maybe feel like I'm a really different person now. I actually am different now and that's okay. It's also important that we remind ourselves to manage our expectations when it comes to being on the receiving end of empathy and support. Other people with MS are truly the best place to garner the MS-specific support we need, and for us to, in turn, support others. It's a beautiful partnership, and I encourage you to find your flock or join ours to get what you need proactively, rather than waiting to be disappointed and feeling alone, which just exacerbates our MS and makes living well with MS seem impossible. Living well with MS has been so much easier since I found our flock and get to meet up regularly with people who truly understand my struggles and celebrate my successes. We are not alone in this. Following this and every podcast episode, I offer Zoom sessions for our Patreon listeners to discuss the episode's topic together. I hope you will join us. Become a patron on patreon.com slash msflock for the Zoom session schedule and invitation links. Membership is only $1 a month to access these important flockings and more content. Flock members, I look forward to seeing you this Saturday where we can continue this discussion. I also invite you to share more ways you think we can increase our outreach to help support more people living with MS. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be well. Ah!